Thank you for listening to this week's podcast from Victory Baptist Church in Hope Mills, North Carolina. I pray that God uses this message to help you worship God, strengthen your relationship, and glorify Him. Without further ado, here is this week's message. All right, so let's try this again. I'm going to start all over again, all the way back at the beginning. Um, But I left my clicker over there. All right, so um, if you would go ahead and open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. This morning we're going to be in verses 32 to 39, uh, and this is a call to endure. Uh, The main idea here is that Jesus gives us hope to endure. And we have that broken down into three parts. There's persecution, there's confidence, and faith. Uh, Persecution, confidence, and faith. The main idea, again, is that Jesus gives us hope to endure. So I'm going to go ahead and uh, jump right into um, verse 32, chapter 10, verse 32. It says, Remember the earlier days when after you had been enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to taunts and afflictions. And at other times, you were companions of those who had been treated that way. For you sympathized with the prisoners and accepted with joy the confiscation of your possessions, because you know that you yourselves have a better and enduring possession. So he says, after you have been enlightened, or after you had been enlightened. <laughs> um, see, the original meaning here of this word enlightened, it seems like it's common sense, right? The original meaning of this word enlightened means to shine light on something. So that you can see it better, right? If something is in the dark, you can't see it very well, so you want to shine some light on it so you can see it better. And so that's the idea behind this word enlightened. Uh, and that came to mean, right, having a greater knowledge or understanding about a subject, okay? Now, this could be, or it, it is usually meant in a spiritual sense, right? It's to have spiritual knowledge and insight. So let me tell you what true enlightenment is. This is real enlightenment. It is the gospel, And the gospel starts all the way back at the beginning of Genesis with God's design. See, God created the whole universe to reflect his glory. God created this world to reflect his glory. And God created us to reflect his glory. And we do that through our relationships. We are created to be in perfect relationship with God, in perfect relationship with each other, and in perfect relationship with the rest of creation. Now, there are other ways that we show God's glory, but that's the main way is through our perfect relationships. And we look around in our lives and we say, well, these relationships aren't perfect. My relationship with God, if I'm being honest with myself, we know that our relationship with God isn't perfect. And that's because of sin. And see, sin is any time that we go against God's will in our lives. It started all the way back in Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve, but it continues to today with our sins. And those sins take us out of God's design. It breaks those relationships and it leaves us in this state of brokenness. Like I said, we feel it in our broken relationships. We feel it with the, the, the brokenness of creation, right? With all these uh, natural disasters coming along with wildfires and, and uh, tornadoes and hurricanes. I do, I do think that is part of the brokenness that our sin has caused. But ultimately, the main brokenness that hurts us the most is our broken relationship with God. And we can try all sorts of different things to fix it, but ultimately we cannot fix it on our own. And the punishment for sin Right? Sin takes us to brokenness, but that's not the punishment. That's the result of sin. The punishment of sin is eternal damnation. It is death and eternal damnation. And that's the only way that we can pay for that sin is through death. So Jesus came, God as man. Jesus came and lived the perfect life. He lived a sinless life so that he could be our perfect sacrifice. And he paid that penalty for us 
so that we don't have to pay that penalty of sin. And we, when we believe in him and repent from our sins, then he takes that punishment for us. And he declares that we are righteous. He has justified us. And our relationship with God can be restored. And so our, uh, we can, we're free to pursue God's design. Like I said, our relationship with God is restored. And so um, we're beginning to recover God's design in our lives. But then also the other relationships in our lives. We can pursue God's design in those relationships as well because we use the gospel in our lives to grow closer to God and we use the gospel in our lives to help others to grow closer to God and to grow closer with other people. And so we're fixing these relationships through the gospel and that's how we can pursue God's design. That is true enlightenment. That's real enlightenment. That's spiritual enlightenment. But there's this other idea of enlightenment that's common in our world. And this is a... a, a secular enlightenment. Now, if you go online and you do a search for the definition of enlightenment, you'll find many, many different definitions. Here are just a few that I found. Freed from ignorance and misinformation. Showing understanding, acting in a positive way, and not following old-fashioned or false beliefs. Factually well-informed, tolerant of alternative opinions, and guided by rational thought. Now, these sound pretty good, but what we find is often those people who will identify themselves as the most enlightened will be the ones who are less tolerant of other beliefs. This secular enlightenment is just another one of the idols that will never satisfy, and it must not be allowed to rule on the throne of our hearts. This secular enlightenment will not, it cannot be our salvation. It will just leave us in this state of brokenness again. It's like the old covenant, just another way for us to try to earn our salvation or fix our brokenness. So like the first century Jews that this letter was written to, we must lay aside this idol for true enlightenment of the new covenant instituted by Jesus. So he's talking about this enlightenment. The author's talking about enlightenment. He says, after you had come to enlightenment, or after you had been enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. So the author indicates that after these uh, first century Jewish Christians came to faith in Jesus, after they proclaimed their faith in Jesus, they suffered persecution. And then he lists a few ways that this played out. It says that they were publicly exposed to taunts and afflictions. So they were victims to verbal and physical assault. And it says, at other times, you were companions of those who were treated this, that way. That means that not only were they victims of physical and verbal assault, but their friends and family were too. And then he says that they accepted with joy the confiscation of their possessions. See, at this time, in the Roman Empire... Authorities were known to, um, to confiscate the property of accused criminals. Not convicted criminals, but to confiscate the, the property of accused criminals. Now, even if the government didn't take everything that they had, often when somebody was in prison, other people in the, in, in the area would go in and loot their homes. So a lot of their stuff was just being taken. They would be accused of some crime. They would be accused of uh, going against the throne, uh, uh, not worshiping Caesar. And so they'd be thrown into prison. And the authorities would take some of their stuff or their neighbors would go in and loot their homes because, only because, they were Christian. Because they worshiped Jesus and they refused to worship Caesar. So the author commends these believers because they endured this persecution. Meaning they didn't let this persecution deter or weaken their faith. See, for first century American Christians, I'm sorry, 21st century American Christians, we're not exposed to the same level of persecution. But the intellectual and cultural elites who see themselves as enlightened 
are not as tolerant as they might claim. This movement began, uh, has been gaining steam for the past half century or so, and it's growing in its audacity. See, nowadays, to hold to a biblical view of marriage and sexuality is considered bigoted. To value and protect human life from the moment of conception all the way to the grave is considered harmful. We claim that the Bible is inerrant and inspired by God, and we're called science deniers and flat earthers. We hold to the truth that faith in Jesus is the only means to salvation, and we're called religious zealots and closed-minded. Christian students are being shamed in the universities. Plus, believers, sorry, we at Victory may not face the same level of persecution that the early church did, but that doesn't mean there is no persecution. There is still persecution in our community, in our, in our culture. Plus, believers all over the world are facing more severe persecution for their faith. See, it's hard to have an exact number for a lot of different reasons, but it's hard to get an exact number. But it is estimated that upwards of 90,000 Christians were killed simply for the, faith, for the fact that they were Christians in the year 2019. I'm not talking about hundreds of years ago. I'm talking two years ago. In 2019, it's estimated that somewhere around 90,000 Christians were killed simply because they were Christian. In the face of this persecution... What is our motivation to endure? Well, the author says, because you know that you yourselves have a better and enduring persecution. This is an interesting wordplay here. First, the author's focusing on the, the believers enduring the confiscation of their possessions, and now he's focusing on an enduring possession. The author returns his focus to the gospel. No matter what persecutions the early church faced, they cannot have, they could not have their faith stripped from them. No matter what persecution that we face today, one thing cannot be taken from us, and that's the gospel. The early church was able to persevere because of their faith in the gospel and their resulting eternal residence. No matter how severe the persecutions that we face, that face the church, they're merely temporary and light in the face of the eternal perfect relationship that we will have with God in his eternal kingdom, in the new heaven and new earth. So now that the author has reminded them of what gives them the hope to endure persecution, he uses that same hope for their continued perseverance. He says, So don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you need endurance, so that after you have done God's will, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while the coming one will come and not delay, but my righteous one will live by faith, and if he draws back, I have no pleasure in him. So the author says, uh, you need endurance so that after you have done God's will, you may receive what was promised. So we, re we discussed this more in depth earlier back in chapter 6, so I'm not going to go super in depth here, but the author is not suggesting that a believer could lose their faith and thus lose their inheritance, which is our residence in God's eternal kingdom. What he is saying is that those with true faith will show their faith by the perseverance of their faith. Those who turn away and renounce their faith, they did not have a saving faith to begin with. A faith that saves is a faith that perseveres. See, the gospel is what gives us the endurance to face persecution. And without saving faith in the gospel, there will be no reason to hold to the truth of the gospel in the face of persecution. In the end times, though, Jesus will come, and he will establish his perfect kingdom. Those who have placed their faith in him will be residents in this kingdom. There will be no more pain, no more suffering, and no more persecution, because the enemies of the gospel will be defeated because they will be judged for their own sin. But it is only through true 
enduring faith that we will have the hope to, to persevere through these persecutions and to, be vic- and to stand victorious with Jesus. Now, speaking of the end times, the author, uh, in keeping with the theme of this letter, he uses an Old Testament quote to talk about the end times. He says, In a very little while, the coming one will come and not delay, but my righteous one will live by faith. And if he draws back, I have no pleasure in him. All right, so we're going to have to take a few moments here and go into what I call nerd zone. This is where I love to be. I know not everybody's quite as nerdy as me, um, but we're going to have to take a little bit of time to go into nerd zone here. All right, so this quote comes from Habakkuk 2, 3, and 4. All right, so that says, For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It testifies about the end and will not lie. Though it delays, wait for it, since it will certainly come and not be late. Look, his ego is inflated. He is without integrity, but the righteous one will live by his faith. Now, when we read these two passages side by side, it's hard to see that the author of Hebrews is quoting this passage right here. Well, that's, there's two reasons for that. The main reason that it's hard to see this quote is because the author of Hebrews is quoting from the Septuagint. Now, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament that was most commonly used in the first century, uh, especially there in and around Jerusalem. So, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. That means... For us, reading the author in Hebrews, right, the, the original text of Habakkuk was written in Hebrew, then it was translated to Greek, and then it's translated to English for us. So I don't know how many of you have a lot of experience with translating languages, but it's just as much of an art as it is a science. So to understand how this might end up weird, I took this same passage, actually just verse 3 right here. I took this passage from Hebrew, and I used Google Translate. And I took it from Hebrew to German to English. So kind of like what the author, uh, or what we see in, in, in Hebrews. But instead of going from Hebrew to Greek to English, I went Hebrew to German to English. All right, so here it is from the CSB, and a good translation here in Habakkuk 2.3. says, For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It testifies about the end and will not lie. Though it delays, wait for it, since it will certainly come and not be late. And then underneath the line here, This is from Hebrew to German to English using Google Translate. It says, Because another vision is for the appointed time, and he will cry out for an end, and he will not be disappointed if he tarries. We can see some similarities in there. Also, it doesn't carry quite the same meaning. Now, obviously, Google Translate isn't a great translation source. It works in a pinch for some things, but it's not not perfect. But this shows just how translating from one language to a second language and then to a third language can lose some of that original meaning, or at least it can, it can hide some of that original meaning, which is why it's so important for us to be confident in the translation that we're using. I'm, I'm confident in the CSB, and that's what I preach from. That's what I do my Bible study in. I do have a few others that I reference as well, but I like the CSB. I think it's a really good translation. Now, most of the time, when the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, it is from the Septuagint. But most of the time, those quotes, they're not subject to quite as much translational um, difficulty as this one. Now, I said there were two reasons why it's hard to see this quote from Hebrew, or in Hebrews from Habakkuk. And the first one is because of the translational difficulties. The second reason is because uh, the, the author of Hebrews is interpreting this coming judgment as Jesus' return. All right, so Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 3, talks about the vision is yet for the appointed time, about this vision. And this vision is explained throughout the rest of chapter 2. But that vision is about somebody who's going to come 
and judge God's people, or sorry, judge God's enemies and restore God's people. He says that God's people will be vindicated and God's enemies will be destroyed. The author of Hebrews is using that vision and and he sees Jesus in that vision. So instead of, in Hebrews, instead of using that term, this vision, he says the coming one, because that's Jesus. Jesus is coming. He is going to return. But the point of these passages, whether you're reading it back in Habakkuk, in original Hebrew, or you're reading it in English from Hebrew to Greek and then English, or or whatever language you're reading it in, the point is the same, that those who place their faith in the Lord can put their hope in him, because he is coming to rescue his people and judge his enemies. Now, if you're listening to this today, you are in one of those two camps. You are either God's people waiting to be rescued, or you are God's enemies waiting to be judged. For those who have placed their faith in Jesus, let that be a source of hope for you. No matter what struggles or no matter what persecution you may be facing, it is light and temporary compared to the glory of our eternal destination. However, if you have not placed your faith in Jesus, don't delay. He could return at any moment. Or as we learned through this last year and a half in this coronavirus pandemic, our lives are very delicate and they can end unexpectedly. So call out to Jesus for salvation and have, and have hope that endures even through the toughest times. Now, the author, he just quoted the Old Testament, talking about the end times, and he's going to expand on this Habakkuk quote a little bit more in the next verse. But just for clarity, I'm going to keep verse 38 up there. We already read verse 38. I'm going to read it again. I'm keeping it up there on the screen. He says, But my righteous one will live by faith, and if he draws back, I have no pleasure in him. But we are not those who draw back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and are saved. We are not those who, who draw back and are destroyed. This phrase links back to verse 38 right here. And it refers to those who claimed to have faith in Jesus. Yet when persecutions came, they renounced their faith to escape the hardship. Or it could also refer to people who claimed to have faith in Jesus. They, they made a profession of faith. They may have even been, been baptized. Yet as time goes on, and you look at their life and you see that they've returned to their life of sin demonstrating that they don't truly believe in the validity of God's work. Or they might have a mental knowledge and believe it up here, but it's not a faith that that affects their life. These people may have claimed salvation. They may have even been baptized. But according to this text, it says they will be destroyed. But we are not those. The faithful hold to their hope in the gospel and show their salvation through the perseverance of their faith. Instead, we are those who have faith and are saved. Now, just like the last phrase, this links back to verse 38 here. My righteous one will live by faith. We are the righteous one who will live by faith. Not saying that our lives are righteous. Not saying that we are sinful. But we are declared righteous through our faith in Jesus. We are saved. Well, saved from what? Slave from our slavery to sin saved from the brokenness of our fallen world, and saved from our broken relationship with God, saved from persecution, and ultimately saved from an eternity in hell. All right, so we get to our application. And our application always comes from our three indicators of a disciple. And so that's knowing, being, and doing. So our first application is to know that faith may bring persecution. Often, as believers, we are persecuted for our faith. This persecution, though, helps us to identify With Christ. He was mocked, he was punished, he was beaten, and he was killed for claiming to be God. 
And if we're going to agree with him that he is God, then we should expect at least some of that same treatment. Hear me, believers. The Christian life is not one without pain and suffering. Rather, we know that this pain and suffering helps us to grow more like Christ. But we also know that this pain and suffering is only temporary, which leads us to our next application point, is to be hopeful. The persecution that we suffer in this world is mild and temporary in light of eternity, in light of the glory of eternity. The suffering we feel in this broken world will be healed when Jesus returns. We look to the end times with hope. Yes, when you read through those passages in the Bible, they can seem like some of the scariest passages in the Bible, but we look to the end times with hope because we know that it is our our faith in the gospel that helps us to persevere through the persecution and get to the other side of that. When Jesus returns and he will establish his perfect kingdom and vindicate his believers, bring his children into his kingdom. We know that when Jesus returns, we will be found faithful. We will be vindicated and welcomed into Jesus' perfect eternal kingdom. So our final application point is to endure. With this end times hope, we can endure the sufferings of this world. No persecution is too much to endure. No suffering can squash our faith. So stand strong in truth and love because Jesus is our King, our Rescuer, our Savior, our hope, and our strength. So our three application points again is to know that faith may bring persecution, be hopeful, and to endure. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you so much for all that you do for us. I thank you for the the truth of the gospel. I thank you that you have enlightened us to know the truth of your gospel. God, I pray if there's anybody here who has not placed their faith in you, that you will prick their hearts, that you will bring them to a point where they can respond to you, that they can place their faith in you. Lord, I pray for those of us who are in this building who are believers. God, I pray that you will help us to focus on your gospel so that we can have the strength and the hope to endure whatever persecutions or struggles might come our way. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you again for listening to this week's message. If you would like to know more information about our church, please visit VictoryBaptistHopeMills.com or Facebook.com slash VBCHopeMills. I would also like to ask that you rate and review this podcast. And if you found this sermon helpful, please share it.